The next of my posts was called, Is the Mystery Solved? As we have discussed many times before, this is no ordinary mystery novel. Because, as critic Jennifer Wilson puts it, its plot centers on the search not for the killer, but for a motive. Years ago, I saw the world's longest-running play, a mystery called The Mousetrap, by Agatha Christie. Throughout the show, I was repeatedly convinced that now I knew who'd done it, and then promptly shown how wrong I was. I have the same feeling here. Every time I think I understand why Raskolnikov committed the murder, the next chapter calls my judgment into question. All of the explanations we have encountered thus far are revisited by Raskolnikov in his confession to Sonia. And, after each one he offers, he calls his own judgment into question. When Sonia first asks why he did it, Raskolnikov seems almost to dismiss the question by giving it the most conventional of answers. He says that he did it to plunder. But he promptly admits to Sonia that he doesn't even know whether there was any money in the purse, and that he hasn't decided whether to take it, if there is. And besides, if he'd killed simply because he were hungry, he would be happy now. Instead, he has come in misery to confess. So, it was not plunder. Racking his brain and looking at her with anguish, he then tells her the explanation that was revealed to us in Porfiry's apartment. He killed the old woman because he wanted to be a Napoleon. If Napoleon had needed the money from the old woman's trunk to start his career, he would have killed her without hesitation, without even thinking. Raskolnikov wanted to follow his example, so he murdered her. But, looking in Sonia's eyes, Raskolnikov knows that this too is nonsense, and all talk, and he gropes for the next explanation. He then says he did it to help his mother and sister. All their hopes were centered on him, and he had no prospects. He could not turn his back on his mother and overlook the indignities to Dunya. So, he resolved to steal the old woman's money and build up a new career. He fumblingly admits that to kill her was of course wrong, and he begins to struggle over this explanation too. Sonia summarily rejects it, declaring that that isn't it. He then justifies his actions by saying he has only killed a louse, a useless, loathsome, harmful creature. But when Sonia reacts with horror at the inhumanity of this idea, he admits that he knows it wasn't a louse, and that he is talking nonsense again. He struggles to search his brain for the truth, and his head begins to ache dreadfully. He wasn't after wealth or power. He didn't want to help his mother. He wasn't a benefactor of mankind. So, was there any other explanation? He then begins an entirely new train of thought, and this one seems more honest. This explanation does not have the clean lines of the others, but instead seems to grope around in the dark of his subconscious. I had the sense that this one was more messy and nebulous, precisely because it was true. It goes something like this. He is vain, envious, malicious, base, vindictive, 
and he has a tendency to insanity. He turned sulky for no reason at all, and sat in his garret like a spider, where the oppressively tiny room cramped his mind and soul. He could have worked, but didn't. Could have studied, but didn't. He just lay there, thinking and thinking and thinking. And he concluded that men are stupid, that the strong in spirit must take power over them, and that he needed only to dare. But he knew all along it was the devil leading him, and he knew that all of his justifications were lies. He did the murder for himself alone. Quote, I wanted to find out then and quickly whether I was a louse like everybody else or a man, whether I can step over barriers or not, whether I dare stoop to pick up or not, whether I am a trembling creature or whether I have the right. Unquote. I said this seemed a more honest explanation. But is it really an explanation? What does it mean that he did it for himself? What does it mean that he wanted to determine whether he has the right? Is it his nature? Some causelessly malevolent whim? Sincerely, the work of the devil? I don't know how to integrate or to categorize the impulses that drive him. Here's what Jennifer Wilson had to say about Raskolnikov's motive. Quote, In killing the pawnbroker, was Raskolnikov testing himself to see if he too belonged to this group of extraordinary men? Was it a utilitarian act of selflessness, eliminating a greedy and tyrannical individual for the greater good? Or did he just want revenge against one of the many people in St. Petersburg who'd exacerbated the conditions of his poverty? The ideas in Raskolnikov's head remain as strange and incomplete as they were when Dostoevsky initially sketched his anti-hero for his editor, and purposefully so. In failing to provide an answer, Dostoevsky doubles down on his argument that we ultimately do not know why people do the things they do. There is no order or rationale to human behavior. This may be a more terrifying explanation, but, in Dostoevsky's view, it is also the truth. Unquote. I don't know what to think about that. All I feel sure of at this point is that we should trust none of the clean and simple motives. But I don't know whether there is a more complex one or none at all. I don't know whether the mystery is solved or in Dostoevsky's eyes, even solvable. The last of my posts was called Humanity. Recently, one of our members expressed appreciation of the fact that in my name guide, I described Svidri Gailov as Dunya's creepy former employer. I told her how much I enjoy that given the nature of this book group, I get to be a little unprofessional. My goal for Read With Me is not to offer you some scholarly, authoritative, interpretive guide. Rather, it is to model what it means to be an active-minded and passionate reader, to stimulate thoughtful analysis by sharing my own observations and questions, and, well, just to enjoy the process of reading along with you. So, I am going to indulge a more personal reaction to this chapter. I may have told you this story before, 
because it is one of my family favorites, but it's relevant again here. When my daughter Greta was about 14, we were riding in the car listening to news commentary on some tragic event. Greta let out a big sigh, turned to me and said, There's no reverence for human life anymore. People only care that someone died if it proves their point. That girl has always been wise beyond her years, and in this case, she seemed wise beyond her culture. It is a sentiment she and I share. We both respond very strongly to artistic expressions of a fundamental humanity, of reverence for human life. That's why I have called Victor Hugo's 93 my religion, because I think it is a beautiful anthem to this reverential humanity. If you haven't read it, it too is available in Read With Me. In it, Hugo says, quote, Above the revolutionary absolute, there is the human absolute, unquote. And, quote, Above all royalty, above all revolutions, above all earthly matters, there is the immense tenderness of the human soul, the protection which the strong owe to the weak, the salvation which those who are saved owe to those who are lost, and the paternity which all old men owe to all children. Unquote. I am always conscious that a spirit of humanity is not on its own prescriptive of politics, and I suspect that I would disagree vehemently with Hugo's. But I still want to see an artistic rendering of a basic reverence for human life at the center of a meaningful education, to accompany all the history, science, and other wisdom that would inform an integrated worldview. I once heard Majid Nawaz, former member of an Islamist group, talk about his own de-radicalization. Amnesty International showed him kindness when he was held prisoner in Egypt, and it was a turning point for him. It is not, he explained, that this was the moment his mind changed. Rather, they touched his heart. And he said, where the heart leads, the mind can follow. I want people's hearts led in the direction of the humane, and their minds to judge how best to implement a spirit of humanity in practice. I find it striking that in this novel about a murderer, a spirit of humanity reverberates from every page, and especially from certain moments of this chapter. When I reflect on this novel as a whole, two quotes from this chapter will stand out as favorites. The first, quote, why do you ask what can't be answered? What's the use of such foolish questions? How could it happen that it should depend on my decision? Who has made me a judge to decide who is to live and who is not to live? Unquote. And the second, quote, a human being, a louse? Unquote. The latter line brought tears to my eyes again as I typed it. Sonia's humanity is so fundamental that she cannot even make sense of Raskolnikov's question about whether, if faced with the choice, she would allow Luzhin or her family to live.
The idea that she might decide who will live and who will die is simply incomprehensible to her. Similarly, she is horrified at the notion that a human being, any human being, no matter what one's moral judgment of them, could be called a louse, and the value of their life debased accordingly. Sonia cares, and Dostoevsky cares, whether a human being lives or dies, absent any moral, sociological, or political point. <laughs>